Well, it's great to uh, see everybody today, especially those of you who are guests. Thanks for being here. If you're watching online, we appreciate it so much. Uh, I'm David. I'm the pastor of the church, and so we're glad to have you. I know this service is our most crowded service. If you ever want a service with a little more space, our 11 o'clock service has a little bit more room. 12:15 has a lot more room. Uh, and so we just go to the service you feel comfortable going to, but just know there are other options there if you, if you want them. Uh, we're in a series that ends today entitled Families at a Crossroads because, uh, we, you know, we care about our families. Uh, we always know there's some families that are in a place where they're struggling. We want to help you, come alongside you, encourage you. But we also know that families sometimes are at a crossroads. Every family at some point just has that place. But family life in general is difficult. It's difficult in the culture which we live in. And so we, we've come to look and see so far that our marriage matters to God and our children matter to God. And so we're going to come now to really kind of a difficult passage. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I understand why this passage may bother you. And, and I get that. So I just want you to hang with us. You know, this, this passage wasn't written to anybody but Christians. The passage we're in was just written to believers. And a lot of times, most of the time, we design a worship service. We want to do everything we can to pick people who are new. Maybe you weren't followers of Christ. Maybe you're just thinking about being a follower of Christ. Maybe you were part of the church and you left and you're thinking about coming back. We really want you to connect to you. But this is one of those passages that are just hard to do that with. But don't give up on it. And if you're single, don't give up on it. Because some of you will get married one day, probably, maybe. Or again, get married again one day. So just, just hang in there, go to the end, and I think for the end, you'll, you'll, you'll get, have said, okay, I got something out of this. And so where we're at today is in Ephesians chapter 5 and chapter 6. And uh, in a message just simply entitled this, Men, it's up to you, love your family. <laughs> so you know how I tell you that in the last two weeks, we don't want anybody to ever feel like they got beat up in the message? I can't promise you that today. If you're a guy... Yes, whenever I read this passage, when I fully understand what the passage says, I'm like, oh my gosh, he's talking to me. Paul's talking to me. It beats me up a little bit. But here's the thing I want you to see. This is so important. You've got to get this. To understand what we're talking about, understand this. Christianity changed the family dynamic. The dynamic of families changed with Jesus. And the way the early church, especially guys like Peter and Paul, wrote about families, they understood that Christianity changed the dynamic of the family. And we come and realize that, that everyone knows that families matter. Families always matter. And I don't care what your culture is. I don't care what century you live in. I don't care where you come from. I don't care what your religious background. Children, I mean, families matter. They matter to us. We know families matter. And we come to a, a passage that just deals with the reality of family and the way it was. In fact, we come to a passage in, in Ephesians 5, and, and it's very similar to what Paul wrote in Colossians. It's very similar to something Peter wrote in 1 Peter, about, about family life. Now, before I get into it, just remember this. Jesus reminds us, or, or Matthew reminds us of the words of Christ in, in, in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, when he said, what we quote Jesus is saying, the Son of Man, that is Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus came to serve us. He tells us this. Paul reminds us in Philippians 2, in verse 5, that we should have the same attitude, the same mindset, the same way of thinking that was in Christ Jesus, who, being the very nature of God, did not consider his equality with God something to hold on to tightly, but he let go of it, and he took on the form of a servant. There is a call to service in the Christian life. And so when you come to this passage, here's what you need to remember. Don't lose sight of this passage. Don't lose sight of the radical and liberating context of this passage. This passage about submission. That people are like, oh, man, I can't believe they're going to preach on that in this century. This is a radical passage. This is a passage that deals with the liberation of people. Now, you understand, when, when Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, he was in prison. It was about 61 AD, give or take. 
He had kind of founded the church at Ephesus, eh, not quite a decade earlier, but eight or nine years earlier. And it just started with this unbelievable thing. I mean, the city of Ephesus at that time probably had about 250,000 people in it. It was probably the second largest city in the world after Rome. I mean, and all these people, and most of them were pagans. It was the home of the temple to worship Artemis or Diana, the love goddess. You know? And so in pagan culture, when you, when you had a fertility worship site, you can use your imagination all that went with it. This was an immoral place. Plus, it was a sea town. And they had a temple to the head god of the, of the Greek pantheon, Zeus. I mean, these people were thoroughly pagan. And there were, there were probably a few thousand Jews there. And when Paul comes on the scene, he begins this movement. You can read about it over back in Acts, you know, in chapter 18, chapter 19. People start coming to Christ. And it creates this, like, riot atmosphere. Now, it makes it sound like there were thousands and thousands coming to Christ. And there may have been a bunch. And he used Ephesus as kind of the home base for all of that part of Asia Minor or Turkey. But people started coming to Jesus. But there were still only a few compared to 250,000 pagans. And most of these followers of Christ came out of a pagan or Gentile background. And in that background, in that world, other than men, everybody else was subservient. I mean, men ruled. Men, men ruled their homes. I mean, the wife was subject to the man. Anything the man wanted. The children were a little more than property. Slaves absolutely were property. I mean, and probably one-third of the population of the Roman Empire was slaves. So we don't know exactly how many were in the Roman Empire. Conservative estimate at this time, maybe 60 million. At least 20 million would have been slaves. And slaves just what we think of slaves. I mean, they were doctors, and they were teachers, and, and they could be clerks. I mean, they could hold important positions. I mean, the economy was just drenched in slavery. And people would come to Jesus. Slaves would come. And women would come. And women would bring their children. I mean, and men would come too. And fam- whole families would be saved. But just like in our church today, I mean, there's some of you, some of you women, you, your wives and your husbands don't come to church with you. It was that way back then. Sometimes you're a husband and your wife doesn't come. That happens too. I mean, you would have all types of people. You, know, you would have families that were fully Christian, families that were part Christian, part pagan. They were all there. It was all one place. In this culture full of paganism. And what Paul's going to write is so radical. And we, we look at it in the 21st century and say, well, why didn't, why didn't the early church end some of these things? Why didn't the church end slavery or elevate the rights of women? Well, they were working on it, but they weren't going to cause social upheaval. The purpose of the church isn't to ever cause social upheaval. It's to change people's lives. The church changes. Christianity changes people's lives one person at a time. Christianity changes the culture one person at a time. We, you think about it, we live in the 21st century. All these things that we, we think about are like, that doesn't work in our culture. You know why? Because Christianity changed the culture. <laughs> we are the beneficiaries of the stuff that Paul dealt with 2,000 years ago. We criticize in the 21st century a first century culture that Paul wrote about, or what Paul wrote in the first century, when what Paul wrote about gives us the freedom to criticize it. In fact, here's the thing. Our world is different than their world because Christianity changed the world. Our world today is different than the world back then because Christianity changed the world. Western culture is a result of Christianity. It is the major influence on, Christian, uh, on Western culture. You have to be unbelievably ignorant or absolutely arrogant not to know that or believe that. I mean, that is that stone-cold truth. We live in a world today that's changed by Christ. Paul wrote to this church, to this small group of believers in a pagan environment to encourage them and to give them a sense of unity, to give them a sense of coming together. And in doing so, in verse 21 of chapter 5, he says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. All of you believers out there, here is a fundamental principle of the Christian life. You submit to one another. The word submit means to put in order. 
If you read a series, maybe you have a series of books you want to read, you probably want to read them in order. You want to submit them in order. You want to understand them in order. That's what that idea is. And there's an orderliness in culture. And so because of our reference, some of your versions may have fear. Because we love Jesus is what it means. Once you're a Jesus follower, what you need to do is look at the other Jesus followers. And you submit to one another. There's a sense of, of mutual submission. And that's okay. We, okay, that's cool. In the church, we get that. But then Paul's going to deal with the principal social contract and principal social organization within human life, and that's the family. And when you look at what really holds all cultures together and what is the principal dominant social group in culture, it's family. And so Paul's going to deal with family, and so he continues. And here's how he begins, dealing with families in verse 22. He said, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And in 21st century America, most women just turn it off right there. And I kind of get that. I mean, I understand. I mean, you think of how powerful women are in our culture. We have, we have a vice president. The woman is a woman. Uh, our governor is a very powerful person, a woman. I mean, all these people have power. And we're reading something from 2,000 years ago about submission, but here's the thing you don't understand. In that day and age, what Paul is writing is actually quite revolutionary. See, wives were to be subject to their husbands. Well, that's nothing new. Then they, they would be sitting there saying, well, duh, so what's the big deal? All wives were subject to their husbands. They didn't have a choice in that culture. Wives had no rights unless your daddy was a prominent man. You had no real rights. Your husband could pretty much do with you as he chose. And so the idea of being subject to your husband, so what's the big deal about that? Well, the big deal is the rationale for it. Paul says the reason you are to be subjective to your husband and to respect and submit to your husband is simply this. It's because of the Lord, because we're to submit to one another, likewise to your husbands. In fact, the word submit isn't even in verse 22 in the Greek. They borrow it from verse 21. So as we submit to one another, he says, wives, do the same to your husbands, but do it this way, for the Lord's sake. And that was different. That was completely different. And then he kind of gives an analogy. Because, see, women have been elevated. We forget Paul even writes about the elevation of women. He says in the eyes of Jesus and other places he writes, there's no difference between men, men and women, male or female, they're all the same. Slaves and freemen, they're all the slaves. Jews and Gentiles, they're all the same. The value is all the same, but they're in a social world. They're in a world, this Ephesus with 250,000 people where women have no rights. And so Paul says, hey, because you love Jesus, go ahead and, and keep submitting to your husbands, but understand this. You're doing it for a different reason. In fact, Peter will tell us in 1 Peter, part of the reason you want to do it, especially if you live with an unbelieving husband, is that he might become a believer. Maybe your husband will come to Christ. And he said you do it because Christ is the head of the church. And he, and he saved the church. He died for the church, and he saved the church. Now, I understand that. This happens so much. We are so hung up on trying to make sure that every single thing that is in the New Testament relates to us somehow. We always want to take everything in the New Testament, make sure it relates to our culture. And then we come to this whole submission thing, and we don't really fully understand it. We don't get that everybody's submitted, and we're trying to make it work. And so here's what preachers do, and I've seen this in conferences dealing with marriage. They come to this, and they say, well, you know, the husband is the head of the church because he's the authority, and so the man's the authority, and, you know, the, and the, uh, Christ saved the church, and, you know, man saves his wife. I'm like, oh, time out, time out, time out, time out. I didn't save my wife. Jesus saved my wife. I'm going to tell you something else. I'm not an authority over my wife. <laughs> I pull that card, and I'm going to be single. <laughs> this is, listen to me very carefully. This is an illustration. And here is the illustration. 
the illustration is that Jesus leads the church. And as Jesus leads the church in the first century, hey, the man is going to lead the family. So the wives go along with that. He's talking to the church. He's not talking to people outside the church. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you may say, I don't want to do that. Okay. There's a, you have bigger issues in your life if you're not a follower of Jesus than that. And here's the really cool thing. He didn't say anything to the husbands on making the wives submit. He just said, wives, that's, this is your call. If you want a stable, good home life, then understand that in first century, the man led the families, and everybody knew that. And he wasn't through there. He talks about the kids. He goes to a part that everybody could breathe a sigh of relief if they were listening. I mean, they were, they were, you know, the church was probably broken up into smaller little house groups. And when Paul wrote this letter, they probably all came together, had to rent some space out. They all come together, and he's reading this. So now Paul says in, in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, children, he comes to kids, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And everybody says, oh, yeah, children, obey your parents. Well, we love that. I always hated when I was a kid when a preacher, would, a evangelist would come to town because they were always going to preach on children's night about how we need to obey our parents. Like we had an option. I'm 12, I'm 10, guess where I live, at home, what choice do I have? So, but he he gives another rationale, because some of these kids were in homes where the dad wasn't a believer, the mom might have been, but the dad wasn't, and all of a sudden, children were important, and that culture children were important. Remember last week, I said, children matter to God, they better matter to us, they got that, they understood that. So they said, but the reason you obey kids is because of the Lord, because of Jesus. Okay, well, that's different. And then they deal with something that's completely foreign to us. He's going to deal with slaves. Now, here's the thing. Remember when I said that we constantly want in our culture to make everything written like to the church at Ephesus fit our culture. And so we don't have slaves today. So what I'm about to say about Paul writes about slavery doesn't really fit to us. And so what people say is, well, this applies to employees and employers. And I would simply suggest to you that that's not true. I mean, there may be some principles you can get out of it, but you can find principles everywhere. Because here's the thing that I know about employees. Employees have options. Slaves never did. You can't always leave your place of employment. And some of you do and have. Maybe some of you should leave your place of employment to move on in life. You have options. Slaves had no options, man. I mean, probably 20, as I said earlier, I think 30% of everybody, a third of everybody in the Roman world was a slave. I mean, that's a lot of slaves. Well, they're not going anywhere. They had no options. You could, a master could kill their slave. They could beat their slave. And some of these slaves become followers of Jesus. And they would serve pagan masters. And while they were elevated in the church, and, and sometimes they taught, and they could be even elevated in culture, they had no option. So Paul says this to them. He says, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters. Notice what he says, according to the flesh. Only your masters in the flesh, with fear and trembling, and sincerity of your heart as to Christ. He said, in other words, you've got to keep obeying them. But you do it because of Jesus. The rationale completely changed. You do it because of Christ. Listen, this, uh, Paul's like, I want to encourage you. But I know it's hard. You'll probably never be free unless your master dies or you can make some money to buy your salvation. You'll never be free in this life. But, but you serve a heavenly master. And then he goes on to write about the fact that you do it because of Jesus. Because Jesus knows what you're going through. And there's life beyond this life. And I know, you know, a lot of times people who aren't followers of Jesus, they don't understand why we're, you know, we always focus on the afterlife. They think that's a cop-out. But just about everybody I know believes in an afterlife. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you believe in an afterlife most likely. Unless you're atheist, you believe something else is beyond that. And everybody I know who believes in an afterlife, even if they're not a follower of Christ, also believes that how they live in this life affects the afterlife. Because there is some degree of truth to that. (laughs) 
you know, if you don't trust Christ in this life, you ain't going to be there in the afterlife. So Paul is reminding them that life is beyond what we experience. So here he comes to the family unit who are people who already have to obey. He didn't tell them anything new. In the first century, this was nothing new except the rationale for doing it was because of your love for Jesus. And that was not just new. It was pretty radical because you didn't do it because you had to. You did it because of your love for Christ. And if you're sitting there listening to this, you could probably write then and there to stop there and and add nothing to it and be fine, but Paul wasn't through. (laughs) In fact, something new, radical, and unique to the Christian movement was about to be unloaded on the people of Ephesus. If you were a guy, you were okay at this point. Yeah, they got the lives, good. Got the kids, need to get that in there. Kids a brat, got to work that up. Slaves, good to hear that. He didn't care if it was because of the Lord. He just wanted to do it. But now something new is about to hit him. Something new is about to pop onto the scene. So the man is sitting there. And he hears, wise, be submissive to your husbands. And he's saying, amen. That's good. Some of you are thinking, amen. You almost would nudge your wife, but you probably know what's coming. So don't do it, because you're about to get an elbow right in the ribs. And if you're not married, you want to elbow someone in the ribs, ladies, go ahead. It's fine. Pick a guy, elbow him in the ribs. They probably deserve it. Verse 25 says this, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, we may not think it's a very big deal, but in that world, that was crazy. You never addressed the husbands. You didn't tell what the husband wanted to do. The husband was the head of the house. No one told him what to do. Paul's saying, hey, you guys, you better love your wives. And they understood what love meant. That didn't just mean warm and affection. The word love, akapate, that is a command. And back then, the word agape, we talk about this sometimes. If you've never been to church here, we talk about the word agape, the word for love. That's not word is hardly ever used outside the New Testament. No one really knows what it means. They took it in the New Testament times. Jesus took it. The writers took it. And it meant sacrificial love. He's saying to the husbands, your wife should submit to you, but you got to sacrifice for her. In fact, you sacrifice your life. You put her first, just like Jesus did. And if you forget, Jesus died for the church. Oh, yeah. I mean, the demand upon the husband was far greater than the wife. And he goes on, in his glowing terms, talk about Jesus, how he sanctified, and he cleansed, and he did all these things, but what he did for the church because of his great love for her. And here again, we get the same thing. We come to that part about sanctifying, cleansing, and we think somehow we got to take that and make it a principle for family life. And we start talking about how husbands, you know, you cleanse and you sanctify and you purify your wives. And I'm just like, that's crazy. We don't do that. It's an illustration. It's a reminder that Christ so loved the church that he died for the church and he lifted the value of the church up. He cleansed the church. He saved the church. He gave himself entirely for the church. Guys, give yourself entirely to your wives. And if that's not enough, he does something that, and this is, we forget this too. He takes this passage, what he's writing, and he goes all the way back to Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, there's the man, there's the wife, there's no sin. Everything is fine. Everything's fine. They are one flesh. I've already talked about that. I don't have time to go into that. One flesh. Man, woman, they complement each other. They complete each other. Everything's great. And then sin enters the world. And it changes things. You realize that before sin came, they never fought. There was no stress. Praise God, there were no in-laws. There was none of that stuff before sin. <laughs> 
You didn't get in-laws until sin came into the world. Don't forget that. See, this is what happens when I make this stuff up as I go. I make that up as I go, and now I've, I've got to remember that in the next two services because I didn't do it in the last one, and I don't even you know, whatever. There was sin. There was no. And you know what they never did before sin? They never worried about somebody submitting to somebody. Why? There's no sin. And sin came and it changed all that. And Paul says this. He says, you are one flesh. One flesh. You know what we do in our culture? And we do this in churches all the time. We try to help marriages have an Ephesians 5 marriage. <laughs> Let's go have the kind of marriage they have in Ephesus. <laughs> and Paul wrote to Ephesus and said, you need to have the kind of marriage they had way back in Genesis. That should always be our goal. That Genesis relationship. Guys, here's what you do. You put your wife first in your life. All the time. All the time. It's a command. Your wife's not commanded to do anything. It's actually encouraged. You're commanded. But it's not through. It gets with the children. And in chapter 6, verse 4, here's what he says, Paul. Fathers. This is crazy. This is crazy in that culture. Do not provoke your children to anger. What? Children were property. You can have your kids killed. You can sell them into slavery. You can sell your daughter into prostitution. You can sell your son into prostitution. And here's what he says. Now, your parents, your kids need to obey you. But dads, dads, don't make them angry. Don't provoke them to anger. In fact, the verse goes on to say, teach them and instruct them in the Lord. You know, your job as the father is to quit trying to be so macho and tough and try to quit teaching your kids, you know, your sons to be tough and macho and your daughters. Like, quit doing that mess. If you, if you have to do that, if you, if you have to pretend to be tough and macho, you're not tough and macho. Let me just explain, first of all, that's just not. So quit, just throw that stuff out. Your kids will get it. Here's what you do. Make it easy for your kids to obey. Just make it easy for them. Why do you have 30 rules when three will probably do? Here's what I found out. If I had too many rules for my daughter, you know what she would do? She would break those rules. But if I just had a couple of really big ones, and then I taught her what Christ wanted her to do, she did okay. And I, I know how that works because I was a kid once. It was a long time ago, but I remember it well. Listen, dads, listen. Make it easy. Listen, make it easy for your kids to obey. Don't make it hard. Make it easy. Can you imagine sitting there, the head of your house, and this guy writing to you, who probably, before we know, didn't have any kids, telling you to be easy on your kids? He did. And then he talks about slaves. And while this doesn't really apply to us, I just want you to get the, the feel for this. Just get the feel for what Paul says. Because people say, you know, why didn't the early church ever deal with slavery and end it? Well, I told you, they could going to cause social upheaval. And eventually they did. But look at what Paul writes in verse 9. And masters... Do the same things. He was talking to slaves. He says, slaves, obey your, obey your master. Please the Lord is what he said. Hey, slaves, please the Lord. Masters, do the same thing. Please the Lord. Quit threatening them because both their master and yours is in heaven. <laughs> and there's no partiality. Let me put it this way. He don't give a rip who you are. You are the same to him. And you better treat your slave. With dignity, just like Christ would. And you know what Christ did for slaves? He freed them from sin. And you know what's bubbling under the surface here? It's to free them from slavery. He didn't say it. 
But this is the groundwork for all that. And here you have Paul coming to the men. He comes to the men. And he starts addressing them. And he starts beating them up. And oh, he is. Oh, man, he is laying the wood to those guys. Because their wives and children and their slaves didn't have a choice in life. Socially. They did. And their obligation was to elevate their wives, children, and slaves, just like Jesus did. To love them. And even if you're not a follower of Jesus... Probably in your home lives, you have a lot of conflict, and you have a lot of problems, and you have a lot of stress. Because here's what our culture says. Put yourself first and love yourself. Our culture teaches you to love you. It's all around us. You're first. You're the most important. And Christianity comes along and says, well, not really. You put the other person first, especially in the home. Submit to one another, and then in the home. And so look, look at what you can get from this. Here's the thing, I don't, I don't, I don't, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, get this, marriage, and by extension of the family, it's about mutual submission. Put your spouse first in all things. Just put your spouse first. Think about it this way. If you're married and your spouse puts you first, how does that make you feel? Well, why don't you do the same thing for them? And if you're not married, hey, guys, gals, if that guy, gals, if that old guy you're not going to marry, if that boy, he's not going to put you first now, he ain't going to put you first later. So, you know, don't, don't, don't. Just figure that out. I don't want to say don't marry him, but don't marry him. Because <laughs> you're going to come to me sometime, and, and, and you're going to have problems. And guys, if she doesn't put you first, why, why do you want a wife that doesn't put you first? You should always put each other first. Debbie and I have been married almost 39 years. It's not been easy. I know that. I, I'm a hard guy to be married. I, I get I'm a hard guy to be married to. But I can promise you this. I try to put my wife first. Sometimes I fail. I do. Because I tend to be a little stubborn. And sometimes I don't hear her. Well, I mean, I hear her. But you know, guys, how your wife will tell you something, and you've got to decode that, what she says? She's speaking a language. You've got to take what she says, and you've got to decode it. And you don't always decode it properly. I never seem to decode things properly. If any of you guys have the key to decoding what your wife says, would you share that with me? I'll send a couple of staff members over to work on your house for you free of charge. You just miss it. Here's what I know. My wife always puts me first. She always does. I know that. And I always put her first. And every day, here's what I pray, God. I mean, I, I mean, I say sometimes that I pray this every day. I don't pray it every day, but I pray it most days. But when I say I pray this every day, I pray this every day. Help me to love my wife like you love the church and put her first in all things. You don't have to be a follower of Jesus to put your spouse first. But it's easier. You have a rationale to not only that, get this. Followers of Jesus live differently than non-followers. This is evident in the home. You know, followers of Christ do live differently than non-followers are supposed to. We ought to be able to look at your home life and see this. No, um, the pastor's not coming to your house to check it out. I got that. But your home life ought to be a model of what it means to follow Christ. Your home life ought to be a model of what it means to follow Christ, that you both put each other first. But here's the thing that you got to realize. I told you that Christianity changed the family dynamic. So when all is said and done, they live in a culture where men dominated. Oh, by the way, we live in a culture where men dominate too. You know that, right? 
<laughs> Do you know why the culture spends so much time and so much hard work and energy trying to balance things out between men and women? And sometimes you may be like, I don't understand this. You know why they do that? Because things aren't that way. <laughs> and that's why if, 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 if everything was truly semi, you know, like equal, they wouldn't spend so much time working on it. Now, I'm not saying whether it's good or bad. I'm not making any political or social comments. I'm just saying men dominate. Men dominate the culture. We just stay. It's just the way it is. So here's the thing. Here's what you should really get as we bring this series and this message to a close. Christianity shifts the responsibility for a stable and fulfilling home life from the wife and children to the husband. Guys, the truth of the matter is, this is what Jesus does and this is what Paul does. He says, if you want to have a home life that's stable and fulfilling, it begins with you. Because most of the problems begin with us. Because we dominate our homes. So if the, most of the problems begin with us, then it stands to reason that to make things stable and fulfilling, we have got to make the change. We have got to love our family. And that's really all it is. It's nothing more than loving your family so much that you put them first in everything. Put your family first. So let me just ask you this, guys. Do you do that? And if you're single, hey, this needs to be your goal. Do you put your family first in everything? And if not, then maybe today you just need to make that commitment that you'll do that. And not just make the commitment that you'll do it today. Make the commitment that every day you're going to start the day by asking God to help you put your family first. And, and, and ladies, gals, put your husband first. Put your kids first. It's, it's no different for you. It's your commitment and your obligation also. So do that. And you don't like the word submit? Okay, whatever. I don't care. How about love? How about love the way the New Testament meant it? By, you know, putting your spouse first. If y'all will just put each other first. And if you're single, if you'll just start a relationship and put each other first, you've got half the battle solved. Today, some of you, you may need to make that commitment. So in our invitation time, just make the commitment. God, I'm going to put my family first. And if I'm not married, I'm going to I'm going to do that when I get married. And if maybe you're older and, and, and that marriage is past you, but you still got an extended family, put them first. You still, I still have to put my daughter first. Do that. Some of you may want to give your life to Christ. We're going to be up here. If you want to trust Jesus as your Savior, I haven't preached the kind of message, but you can. If you want to join our church, you can. If you want us to pray with you, and, and just because you come to pray, it doesn't mean your family's a mess. Maybe you're praying for another family, or maybe you're, just, maybe you're praying for your kids, you're praying for your spouse who's going through something. Put your pride aside. If you want us to pray with you, we will. So I don't know what God wants you in your life. I can't tell you what you need to do. But when you walk out of here, you know this. Love your family. Love them. And put them first. Thank you, Lord. You give us families. And even in all our sin and all our failure, and even in the way we mess all of that up, you give us hope. You give us a way. You give us a path to take our families and to have peace and love and stability and fulfillment. And it's in Christ. And it's in submitting first to Jesus and then to one another. So help us love. Help us just love. And let it begin with our men to love their families. And let the women love their families. And let us as a church love our families. Because our families are at a crossroads. And they need you. And you are the answer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?
We'll be at the front to greet you. Can you come?